And then we'll also read a portion from Hebrews chapter 7. In your pew Bible, Exodus 28 is on page 86. The text, the focus of the sermon will be drawn from a few verses in this chapter. In this chapter, the the Lord gives instructions about the clothing of the high priest, and we're going to see how, how the gospel is contained in that clothing. So we read the Word of God, Exodus 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. You shall take two onyx stones, and grave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece the two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod, 
You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out, so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear their guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. We turn now to the letter to the Hebrews, New Testament, chapter 7, where the Holy Spirit, through this writer, speaks about the priesthood and how it connects with and is fulfilled in the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, page 1279 in the Pew Bible. Chapter 7, we begin at verse 11 to verse 28, end of the chapter. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, 
from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So far, the reading of God's Word. The focus of the sermon this afternoon will be Hebrews, no, Exodus 28. Hebrews 7 will be in the back of our minds. But Hebrews, or rather, Exodus 28, verse 12, together with the verses 19 and, or rather, 29 and 30. So let's just read those three verses again. Exodus 28, verse 12. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Then verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So far, our text, in response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing again from Psalm 28, the stanzas 4 and 5. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, 
We have before us a text this afternoon that seems to come from another world. It's all about clothing, the clothing of the high priest in Israel, a figure who, for most of us anyway, is light years away from where we are. Who stops to think about a high priest in our day? Who stops to think about his clothing? We read something here about something called an ephod. What even is that? And what about this breastpiece that the Lord commands? By its name, we know that the high priest would have worn it over his chest. But what is so important about it that it gets mentioned first in the list of clothing? And then there's these fascinating jewels we read about, two on the, the shoulders on each shoulder of the high priest, and 12 more jewels on his chest. What's all that? I mean, we wear jewels. We might wear diamonds on a, on a ring or in our ears, maybe a jewel around our, our neck. But who sews precious gems into clothing and puts them on their shoulders or on their chest? Very strange to us. And then in the, the thick of all this description, we read something that seems to come out of the blue sky. Words that come right out of Hebrew into English because to this day nobody really understands what they mean. The Urim and the Thummim, verse 30. The Lord just introduces them here as if all the Israelites knew what He was talking about, but if that was the case then, it is certainly not the case now. And we are left puzzled. What are the Urim and the Thummim? So it's a text from long ago about things that are so remote, seemingly, to believers like us today, and about a matter that seems so far removed from the excitement of this present occasion, where Ancaster's new pastor is taking to the pulpit for the first time. Why this text? What is the connection between all these strange descriptions and what's going on here today? Well, the connection, brothers and sisters, is Jesus Christ. Through you as congregation, the Lord Jesus has called me here to serve, to serve you as minister of the gospel. That's my, my task. It's also my privilege and my pleasure to serve up to you in, in all of my work, in my preaching, my teaching, and my visiting among you to serve up to you the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And that's why we have this text before us this, this afternoon, because that's what it's all about. That's what the whole Bible is all about, beloved. Whether it's the Old Testament shadows like we have before us, or whether it's the New Testament realities like we read about them in Hebrews, it all speaks of Christ, whom God has anointed to be our King, our prophet, and also our great high priest, who always remembers us. So I bring you the gospel under that theme, the gospel of a high priest who remembers us 
before the Lord. We'll see that he carries us in compassion and he defends us in love. Now, to understand the details of our, our text, we just have to take a step back for a moment and understand the basic task of a priest and of a high priest in ancient Israel. Aaron was appointed as high priest and his sons as priests, and they were all to serve at the tabernacle. Aaron was over them as boss, you could say. He was their supervisor. That's why they call him the high priest. Well, the, the, the priests in general would serve individuals or families who came to the tabernacle, and the high priest, he would minister to the nation as a whole. Whenever there was a, a national sacrifice or a national holy day or festival, the high priest was involved. And priests, the whole priesthood was vital for worship. An Israelite who wanted to, to come close to the Lord to worship in the tabernacle, he would or she would enter through a, a doorway a, of colored curtains, and you would enter into the outer courtyard of the tabernacle. You would come there with your animal sacrifice, but that was as far as you could go, that outer court. The tabernacle itself stood in the distance, some yards down the, the way. That tabernacle had two rooms. The furthest room was the most holy place behind which stood the ark of God behind, behind a very thick curtain. And the nearer room was the holy place in which stood the golden altar of incense, the, the golden table of showbread, and the golden lampstand. Only priests could go into the holy place, and only the high priest could go into the most holy place and that only once per year. And all of this was by God's design. It was His very particular instructions throughout the earlier chapters in Exodus, and the message of the setup was pretty clear to the average Israelite. The holy God was there in the midst of His people, and that was good. But what was a bit disconcerting was the sinful people, they couldn't draw close to the Lord, not on their own. No Israelite could waltz into the holy place or let alone the most holy place to sit in God's presence, to talk with the Lord. They couldn't do that because they were sinners by nature and the Lord is holy by nature. And God cannot associate with anything or anyone sinful. Sin is disobedience to God. We know that. It's rebellion against the Lord. That It terribly offends the Lord. It triggers His righteous anger against us. And unless God's wrath is somehow turned to the side, the wrath of God would destroy any sinner who tried to come close to the Lord. And yet the priests were allowed to come close to the Lord. That's the first bit of gospel in their office and in our text. The Lord commanded and the Lord permitted them to draw near as representatives of the people, you see. So God anointed the priests as go-betweens, as mediators between the people and Himself. They would take the animal of the worshiper, 
Just imagine for a moment it was, it was you coming to the tabernacle. They would take your animal. They would slaughter it there in the outer court. They would offer it as an offering on the bronze altar in that outer court. They would sprinkle some of the animal's blood on that bronze altar. And then they would have a little basin and they would take some of that blood and they would disappear, so to speak, into the holy place with that blood. And they would sprinkle it before the golden altar of incense on your behalf. Well, if you were there on that occasion, that was, that was your animal, the message was very clear. God had taken out His holy wrath on that animal and not on me. The animal was substituted for me. And the priest would after he had sprinkled the blood inside the holy place, he would stand there and he would pray for you and your family. And then he would come back out and he would pronounce God's blessing upon you and your family. He would place the shalom of God on your life. The priest was a, a mediator. You could say the priest was a bridge between sinners like us and the holy God. Well, you might ask, what... what what about the high priest and the priests, his sons? Weren't they sinners too? How could they approach God? And it's true, all the priests were sinners. And the Bible tells us, in particular, a number of Aaron's sins. So how could such a sinner be a bridge to God for other sinners like themselves? How could an imperfect man like Aaron draw close to the Lord on behalf of all of Israel? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is this. Because Aaron did not go into the tabernacle as Aaron, the brother of Moses, an ordinary Israelite. He went in there in his office as high priest. He went in there as the official representative anointed by the Lord at the commandment of the Lord, and that makes all the difference for what he was doing. In other words, he didn't go into the tabernacle in his own name, but in the name of the Lord, as the servant of the Lord, doing temporarily and imperfectly what the Lord's better servant and the Lord's perfect high priest would later do in all fullness, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the letter of Hebrews shows us so clearly. Aaron and all the high priests and all the priests working under those high priests, they were shadows of Jesus, the great high priest whom God sent in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I think most of us will know that the lamb that was slaughtered is a picture of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God who gave his life on the cross to save us from our sins. But the saving work of Christ is so rich and so full that God used many kinds of shadows, many different pictures in the Old Testament to get across the richness of his work. And the priesthood is another picture. Jesus is not only the spotless sacrifice, sacrificial lamb, he's also the spotless high priest, and he himself is the true bridge between us and God. So you can say it this way, beloved, 
Aaron was allowed to come near to God because he was coming near in the name of Christ. He had been anointed into the office of Christ, the true high priest. He was doing the work of Christ. He was doing it in anticipation of Christ's arrival. That's what this clothing in Exodus 28 is all about. It was special clothing. It was unique to the office of high priest, symbolic of richness and purity, made only to be worn by Aaron and the high priest serving after him when they would be serving in the tabernacle. They couldn't just wear this any time. It was for tabernacle work. We read in 28 verse 2 that these garments were made, and I quote, for glory and for beauty. The glory of what? The beauty of what? It's the glory and the beauty of the priesthood. The glory and the beauty of what the great high priest Jesus would later come to do. So important was this clothing, right down to the bells around the hem, we read about that too, that if the priest did not wear this outfit, that is, if the bells weren't ringing, when he went into the holy place, the priest would die under the wrath of the Lord. So the message was very, very clear to the high priests and to the priests and even to Israel. Aaron the sinner, Aaron the high priest, could only come close to the holy God in the clothes of the great high priest to come. Wrapped, as it were, symbolically, in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. That's what those clothes symbolize. That's the only way any human can approach God, us included, wrapped up in the beautiful and the glorious robes of Jesus' holiness and righteousness. That's the gospel message, beloved. It's been the gospel message ever since we needed a gospel, Genesis 3. And it remains the good news that I have been called to share, to teach, to proclaim to you in all of its brilliant facets. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the bridge between us and God. He brings us to God. He takes us into that most holy place. And now, guess what? We get to live there, in God's dwelling place, in fellowship with Him, in holiness. Christ has paid for all our guilt by His blood, and now the ugliness of, of sin and sinful habits, they are being scrubbed from our lives by the Spirit of Jesus. That's the gospel in its picture form in Exodus 28. And brothers and sisters, I ask you to do me a favor. Actually, I ask you to do for me what's necessary. I ask you to pray for me as I pledge to pray for you. Pray for me as we did this morning. I need your prayers so that I may be a faithful shepherd of this gospel, bringing it in its purity and in its fullness to you week after week, visit after visit, so that together we may walk with our Lord and Savior in trust, 
in love, in obedience, that we might be and become holy as He is holy. And as we pray for one another, let's be deeply comforted that we are being prayed for by somebody else, someone more powerful and more persuasive than we could ever be. That's what those two onyx stones on the shoulders of the high priests were all about. They're uh, precious gems, if you will. I'm not going to get into all the details about these gems, but suffice it to say that all the gems referenced are precious jewels of one kind or the other. Our text describes this in verse 12, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Now we'll talk about that ephod in a minute, but the key point here is that each precious stone, on each of those stones were to be written six of the names of Jacob's sons. So the high priest would quite literally carry the names of the people of Israel on his shoulders into the presence of the Lord, into that holy place, and he would do so for remembrance. The Lord thinks that's a pretty important word because he mentions it twice in verse 12, and it comes back again in verse 29, for remembrance. But we want to ask, Whose remembrance? Who has to remember whom? Well, the high priest had to remember Israel in prayer before the Lord so that the Lord in turn would remember to provide all the needs of his people. That's what this expression means. To, to bring to remembrance before the Lord is another way to speak of the work of prayer, the work of intercession. And this was a critically important task of the high priest. We know that because the Lord gives a double reminder to the high priest of this need to bring to remembrance. The names of, of Israel's twelve tribes were written not just once upon the man, but twice. Twelve names on his shoulders, always visible out of the corner of his eye, and then twelve names over his chest, always close, near, and dear to his heart. Aaron was never to forget the people before their God. He was to remember them with devotion, with precious care, and to remember them continually. The high priest was literally carrying the people of God into the presence of the Lord, and he was holding them up in prayer. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ, your high priest in heaven now, he carries you to his Father in prayer day and night. Remember, the, the priests are just a shadow of what the great high priest would come to do, and we read about that interceding work in Hebrews 7. The writer says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, here it comes, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The high priests, they couldn't do it day and night. They slept, and they also would die. 
But Jesus doesn't sleep. And Jesus doesn't die. He prays for you and he prays for me and all of God's people continually. And he does this, brothers and sisters, with tremendous empathy for us and our circumstances. He carries us to his Father with full compassion, knowing our weaknesses. And we've got a lot of those, don't we? Physical weaknesses, spiritual weaknesses, emotional weaknesses, weaknesses of character. All of these, some of these, they can bring us pretty low at times. Aaron and any high priest already were to carry the needs of the people of God with gentleness and compassion because they knew themselves to be weak and sinful, as Hebrews 5 verse 2 explains. So they could sympathize. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. If you were Aaron, commanded to go into the holy place, the presence of God, knowing your own transgressions, knowing your own many shortcomings, <coughs> knowing your own unworthiness, would that not make your heart soft and gentle and compassionate for your fellow believer who is a sinner like you? You know, if you find yourself sometimes struggling with hard feelings toward a, toward a fellow church member or a fellow Christian somewhere, just stop. Stop for five minutes and think about your own sins, about how you would fare in the presence of the Lord with your sin, and then see if that doesn't soften your heart toward your neighbor. So, ordinary high priests would have compassion for the people they prayed for. The Lord Jesus has even more. It's true he had no sin, and yet, Scripture says, his understanding of our weakness and struggle is actually greater than any other priest. Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Just think of how Jesus was tempted throughout the course of his life. And because he never gave in to the temptation, every temptation was stretched by the devil and demons and perhaps unbelievers, it was stretched, it was pushed to the max. You know, you and I, when we're tempted, we so quickly fall, don't we? So if we had to put this in percentage terms, we'd be lucky to get, say, 20% of the way into the temptation and we give in. Well, Jesus didn't get 20% of the way in, or 40, or 80. He went 100% and he always said no. He was always tempted to the max, but he resisted always, so he understands the fullness of our ability to be tempted. He has compassion. He has every ounce of compassion for your struggles and mine, for your imperfections and mine. 
He not only loves us, you see, but He understands us because He's a man as well as God. And so He carries us on His shoulders to His Father to secure all the help we need in order to live with our God in holy thankfulness. That's good news, isn't it? Man, that's the best news. Our gracious high priest, he, he carries us in compassionate prayer just as he also defends our cause in passionate love. For that seems to be what those 12 names written across the high priest's heart on 12 gems was all about. We read that they were mounted on the breastpiece and the breastpiece itself was mounted on the ephod. Well, what's that? From all that we can gather from the Bible and historical sources, and we don't, know, uh, we don't have a, an accurate drawing of an ephod, but what we can gather is that it was a sleeveless garment covering the upper body, kind of like a vest. It would go down from the shoulders to the waist, perhaps a little bit lower than the waist. And the, the ephod was worn by all the priests, the, the regular priests and the high priests. The regular priests had a white ephod, so it was kind of a mark of their office. But the high priest had a, a very specially colored ephod. It was made quite literally of gold threads. And I don't know if you picked that up when we read it there, but when you read gold, they shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns. Before I studied this passage, I thought gold referred to the yarns, just like the other colors. But it does not. It refers to the metal. So what was going on, they, the, the other yarns, the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they were woven together as fabric, and then literal gold was laced or threaded through the garment. And it's mentioned first in the list, so gold was predominant in this ephod, this vest. You could imagine that it made it stand out, this ephod. It was quite spectacular. Nobody else would have a, a vest made of, uh, of threaded with gold. And to understand the, how the ephod worked with the rest of the clothing, let me just fill in the picture. We read elsewhere in this chapter that the, the priests were to wear an undergarment next to the skin. On top of that, they were to have a long robe from the shoulders down to the feet. And for the high priest, that was a blue robe. And on top of that blue robe was this ephod, this vest. And on top of all of that, there was even a checkered coat. And on the high priest's head, he wore a turban. Every, every priest wore some kind of head covering. The high priest was a little different. He wore a turban. And when you look at the, the whole outfit, you could try to imagine that in your mind's eye, the high priest colors stood out quite dramatically from the ordinary priest. And it was especially that ephod that did that. And if you've ever read through the book of Exodus, perhaps that description, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, rings a bell. Where have you heard that before? You've heard it in the description of the tabernacle. The, the curtains were made of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. All through Exodus 26 and 27, 
the Lord gives that detailed instruction, and those colors are mentioned over and over again. And inside the tabernacle, what is found in, in, the, in the holy place, especially, the, and the most holy place even more so, is gold. Everywhere there was gold. The ark was overlaid with gold. The table was overlaid with gold. The lampstand overlaid with gold. The altar of incense overlaid with gold. So all of these colors together and, and the gold with it produced a very rich garment. Colors like that were not common among the ordinary people. They were worn by kings and princes. They suggested majesty and power. And in the case of God, they suggested that we don't know what they were exactly. We don't have any description in the Bible of these objects. There's lots of guesses and hypotheses but the Bible simply does not describe them. We don't even know if it was one object or two. Scholars have debated these matters, matters for centuries, so we need to be, to be humble and careful about our conclusions. But what seems fairly clear from all the biblical data is that the high priest would turn to the Urim and Thummim at certain points namely when there was a national emergency. So these were not in common usage. There had to be some grave sense of emergency, some serious question uh, or uncertainty affecting all of Israel. Then the leaders would approach the high priest, who would in turn take the question to the Lord. And the Lord, through some prophetic means, would enlighten the priest's understanding, and he would give an answer and confirm that answer somehow through the Urim and the Thummim. The best guess for the somehow comes from Dr. Van Dam, who made a special study of this Urim and Thummim, is that there was a, a stone inside that pouch, and the stone would be taken out, and it would light up. The Lord would cause it to light up after he gave a revelation to the priest. It's only a guess, and the good doctor is pretty upfront about that, but that's the kind of idea we're left with from Scripture. So that's the Urim and the Thummim, as best as we can understand it, and that understanding relates to the more regular use of the breastpiece of judgment as simply the high priest bringing to the Lord, and you recall what he had to do, he had to remember the people before the Lord, causing the Lord to remember Israel and their covenant rights. The breastpiece of judgment, it is called. Well, that word for judgment can be translated in different ways. It's a rather rich term. It can be translated simply as laws. It can be translated as justice. Or it can be translated as legal right. When you remember that the high priest went into the tabernacle before the Lord to remember Israel as a, as a nation in the presence of the Lord, then it makes total sense that the high priest should also bring up to the Lord the covenant rights of the people. For instance, when Israel was threatened by an enemy, or when Israel perhaps had a wicked king come to the throne, then you could understand that the high priest being seeing a threat to the nation would bring to the Lord the needs of the people and he would plead with the Lord to rise up in defense of the people and he would plead on the basis of what the Lord had promised 
in his covenant. Covenant writes, O Lord, do for your beloved nation what you promised so long ago to do. The breast piece of justice, you could say. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, do we know, do we know that our God wants us to hold Him to His promises? That our God loves it when we come to Him in humble prayer and remind Him of what He has said to us in His Word and that we plead with Him on the basis of what was said asking him to fulfill his promise? When you as a Christian are under threat, when you face attack because you confess the name of Christ, it's good to come to your God and say something like this, Father, you have said in Holy Scripture that you are always with us, your people. You're always with me, Father. You have exhorted me not to be afraid of enemies, but to take courage. And so, Father, I, I plead with you, give me that courage. Fill me with your strength, O Lord. Keep me from becoming afraid and help me to stand firm under threat. Help me to keep the faith when I feel like giving in. And do we know how much our God loves us and wants to hear from us and longs to rise up in our defense? That's what the Lord is getting across in the, these 12 precious jewels. Why would the Lord choose 12 precious jewels to put on Aaron's chest if it wasn't to communicate that Israel is to him like precious gems. Like the, the, the husbands here might want to give to their, their brides a, a diamond ring or a, a, a jewel to hang around their neck as an expression of their devotion, as an expression of their love, to communicate you are as precious. No, you are more precious to me than this diamond, this ruby. This ruby actually doesn't come close to how precious you are to me. The ladies understand that message. Do we understand? That's how the Lord feels about us. Precious. Exodus 19. The Lord specifically said of His people, You are my treasured possession. The whole nation... The whole church is God's treasured possession. And each of you, brothers and sisters, is a precious gem. And how much more so now that the great high priest has shed his own blood to defend our right as God's covenant people, protecting us eternally from God's righteous wrath. How much more precious now. As Reverend Hollander said this morning, you and I, are the apple of God's eye, the jewels in the crown of Christ, forever 
dear to his heart. And so the picture we get from our text, the picture we get of Jesus, our great high priest, is this. He compassionately carries us in our weakness to his Father, laying out our needs, asking the Father to meet those needs, and he lovingly defends our cause when we face threats. And since the intercession of this high priest is spotless and all of his work is without fault, his Father grants him what he asks without fail. And his Father has done more. He's given to Jesus, his Son, all authority and power so that Christ will do for us the very thing he asks for us. So Jesus, you see, becomes, has become our great defender. And his cross and resurrection guarantee our ultimate victory. That's the gospel that I hope to unpack to you in all of its full scope and wondrous variety every time I step into this pulpit, every time I step into your home or into the catechism classroom. And if I'm not bringing that gospel, you need to talk to me and straighten me out. That's the gospel that I trust we all love and embrace in faith as together we walk with our God into the fullness of His kingdom. Amen.